From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. We're going to come to an end of our series in the book of Revelation. We've been uh, uh, looking at the seven churches, the message of Jesus to the seven churches, and ultimately his message to every church. And I think it's going to be a great way to end this series and this sermon today um, by taking communion together. But if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 14 to 22. But let me quickly, very quickly recap what we've done so far. So we first began this series by looking at the main person of, of the text and what the whole of Revelation points to, and that is Jesus, how Jesus is supreme, that he's sitting on his throne. And the image of Christ we get here is not the um, man walking through Galilee with dust on his robes and disciples following behind. It's a king on a throne, and that is where Jesus sits right now. And so we need to kind of get that image out of our head of dusty robe Jesus and then throne glory Jesus. Uh, secondly, as we began uh, looking at Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, and, and they were someone who had lost their first love for Christ. They lost their first love for Christ, and so Jesus called them to repent and to do the things that they had done at first. Secondly, we went to Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church, and Jesus called them as they were being persecuted for their faithfulness. He called them to remain faithful to the end, even to the point of death. And we looked at Pergamum. Um, Pergamum was a tolerant church. They compromised their faith, and they had adopted the false teachings of Balaam's and the Nicolaitans, and uh, Jesus called them to repent. Next, we looked at Thyatira. Thyatira was a church that was full of compromise. And they were, if you remember, adopting the teachings of a woman named Jezebel. And we received at the end this beautiful picture of Jesus and, and who we are to pull out, that picture who, that we're to pull out when we're tempted who Christ is. Next, we looked at Sardis. Sardis was the sleepy church, and they had a great reputation, but they were dying on the inside. They lacked zeal, and they lacked passion, and they were doing deeds, but not the deeds of God, and Jesus called them to wake up. And a little bit of what we're talking about today is kind of like the church in Sardis. Then we have Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the enduring church, And Jesus had a word of encouragement for them. He just wanted to come along and encourage them and then show them doors he was placing before them that no one can shut, doors of opportunity and salvation. And we're ending today with arguably the the most well-known of the seven churches. This is the church, um, the message that Jesus has to the church in Laodicea. So if you have a Bible, you can read along with me. We're going to start at verse 14 all the way to 22, and it says this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus talking here. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love, I rebuke, and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. 
Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Father, we open our ears to hear what you have to say to this church, but ultimately to our church, to us. God, move us. And Lord, if there's something in us, Lord, if there's lukewarmness, if there's compromise, awaken us and stir us and convict us to repentance, Jesus, that we may come alive again and we may be filled with passion and zeal for the name of Jesus and for the kingdom of God. Lord, we bless you for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you rebuke those whom you love. and You discipline those whom you love. And so, Jesus, we open ourselves up to you and the things you want to say and what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, uh, we took our kids trick-or-treating. We do that in our house. I grew up in a home where that was significantly frowned upon, and we never did that. And uh, we did other things like harvest parties. Remember those? It's not a Halloween party. It's a harvest party. Um, or we went to the movies, and in fact, there was one time I remember that my dad was coming home late from work, and for whatever reason, my mom would let me go trick-or-treating one time. She's like, just go out a little bit. And so I just, I snuck out. My dad got so upset when he came home and found out I was trick-or-treating. So we're living now vicariously through our children. So the candy tax is high in our home, and, and we upped it this year because inflation rate is high right? And so in keeping in line with inflation, we're trying to teach our kids a little something that sometimes things get a lot higher, a little costly, and you have to give up. And so give up. <laughs> oh man, it's, it's, tr- it's completely true. Our kids this year, they're learning like as they get older a little bit what trick-or-treating means, right? Like you go, you go door to door and you knock for candy. In fact, this was, they were so eager this year. This is the first year that our boys actually were running ahead. Like, we, we couldn't keep up, right? They were just so eager. And I remember as, you know, we have one son who's, like, super inquisitive, and he, he has, like, full of questions, and it's just, like, he's thirsty for knowledge and, and anything, that information that you're going to give him. And so there's, you know those houses that, there's some houses you know that are giving out candy. There's some that you know are not giving out candy, and there's some that are kind of like, you don't know, because they don't, they have, like, one light on, and you're like, is that, like, just the automatic light, or is that the light come to the door? Or are you saying, like, we're not home, we're in the basement. Like, I don't know. Like, we used to do that. We used to hide in the basement, okay? I'm being honest. And so there's this house. It was one of the first houses we went up to, and it kind of had one of those lights, and our son goes knocking on the door, and no one comes to the door. But being the eager beaver that he is, he continues to knock. And I'm like, whoa, 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 don't do that. We're Canadians. We're not rude. You know, we're polite. Come back, come back. And he's like, what, what? If they don't come to the door... You know, after the first couple knocks, you just, you just keep going. And I couldn't help but think of this, this church, Laodicea. Because this church is, is famous for the line of Jesus, I stand at the door and I knock. Jesus has a message for this church. And he has a message for us. Remember the line at the end of each message to the churches. He says, whoever has ears, right? Whoever has ears. So he has a message for us as well as this church. And it's this, let me in. That's the message. Let me in. I want in. 
So a little background on Laodicea. Laodicea was located south of all the churches. We're going to throw up a map there for you. You'll see it's kind of like at the, the bottom there. And it was one of three sister churches, along with Heropolis and uh, Colossae, or Colossae, sorry, um, that were situated along a rich um, valley nurtured by the Lycus River. And we actually know from the letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, that the churches in Colossae, and I'm going to say that wrong like a thousand times today, <laughs> and Laodicea, that they shared actually a close relationship with one another. In fact, Paul mentions actually in the letter to, for the Colossians to share their letter with the Laodiceans, and the Laodicean letter, which we do not have, it's gotten lost, to share their letter with the Colossians. But Laodicea was known for a few things that are important when understanding this letter. The first thing that they were known for was their banks. They, they had lots of banks and they were full. Like it was a wealthy city. In AD um, 60, an earthquake leveled Laodicea along with Philadelphia. And the city was offered assistance, much like Philadelphia was, and I think it was AD 17 when they were leveled. They were offered assistance from Rome to help rebuild the city, but they politely refused. And they rebuilt themselves from their own wealth. They were wealthy. Secondly, is um, they were known for their clothing industry. Um, it was known for its wool, and the garments that they made there were transported all over the known world. The Laodiceans were the best dressed. Right? They're the fancy dressers. And finally, they were known for their medicine, famous for its excellent medical school, and specifically for developing an eye ointment that was believed to heal weak and failing eyes. So banks the clothing industry, and medicine. This city had everything, and they believed that they were completely self-sufficient, that they did not need a thing. What more would you need if you had wealth and health and materials? And unfortunately, that is the, the mentality of our day. That's the mentality of our day. If I can attain those things, what else would I need? If I can get money, and if I can have health, and if I can have materials, what else is there? And this is really is a form of secular humanism, right? Which basically is the understanding that man is the measure of all things, not God. Right? We don't need divine intervention. We don't need divine assistance as long as we have wealth and we have health and we have materials and we're progressing. Life is good. What else is there? And unfortunately, the church and Laodicea have drunk the Kool-Aid of the culture and of the, of the city. They were influenced by the city, much like many of us followers of Jesus are today. And they had become what Jesus calls lukewarm. They were lukewarm. So Jesus comes on pretty fervent in this letter. He has some pretty strong language. And he presents himself to this church with probably the clearest statement of who he is. And it kind of points to why he's coming on so intense. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Some translations, yours might say the beginning of God's creation there. So he's the, the God of the amen. Amen in Hebrew is a way of acknowledging that something is valid and trustworthy. Right? We say amen at the end of our prayers, often in agreement with one another because we're saying yes, I agree that is valid, that is trustworthy, that is something that I can build a foundation upon. 
And so Jesus being the amen is implying that he is the trustworthy foundation of life, that his words are true and valid and binding. So if you build on him, if you remember this, the Jesus message in Matthew, if you build on him, if you build on his foundation, when the storms of life come, you may shake, but you will not fall. He's the great amen, the true amen. Secondly, he's the faithful and true witness. Jesus actually called this, again, at the end of Revelation, John has this picture of this white rider and on the, the, sorry, the white horse and on the horse is the rider who is faithful and he's true. And that word true in the Greek language means he's the genuine article. Like he's the real deal. Like he is it. So if he is faithful, if he is the faithful and true witness, what he says about God and what he says, the message he has for these churches is exactly true because Jesus exactly represents God. He's the real deal. He's the genuine article. In a world of postmodernism where your truth is your truth, right? That's kind of where we live. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. You know, let's just leave each other alone. Jesus makes the claim that he's absolute truth. Like, like Jesus' message of who he is flies in the face of our culture. You can't, you can't just, in our culture, we'll say, well, he was a great moral teacher. He's a good man. Well, he's claiming to be absolute truth. He claims to be the only way to salvation. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the words of Christ. He is the absolute truth, the trustworthy foundation to build on. And finally, he's the ruler or beginning of God's creation. And that word here is really important. The word ruler or beginning um, is arche in, in Greek. And really, it means source or origin. He's the archetype of all creation. He's the source of creation, meaning that all of God's creation has its origin and purpose in him. He's the moving cause of life. He's the first of creation and of new creation, not meaning that he is created. Jesus is eternal. He is God. It means that in the known and unknown universe, everything has the stamp of Jesus on it. From something microscopic to the farthest reaches of space, it bears the imprint, it bears the stamp, it bears the name of Jesus, the Arche, the beginning, the ruler. One author said it this way. He said, the personality and way of Jesus are stamped on our nerves, on our blood, our tissues, our organs, not merely written in the text of scripture, but into the texture of our being. So Paul shares with the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, that church that was in close relationship with Laodiceans. Remember, they're part of the sister, three sister churches. He says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn here doesn't imply that he's the firstborn created. It's not saying that Jesus is created. The firstborn in ancient Jewish uh, patriarchal society had special significance. And so what it actually means here is that, that the, so the firstborn would inherit role and they would inherit um, um, uh, authority and they would inherit position. And so Jesus here, it's implying that Jesus' is unique role, um, he has a unique role and unique authority and he has supremacy over all creation. As we continue, we hear it from Paul. So he says this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Not, not through the father. It, 
Paul is saying it's through Jesus all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things, not some things, all things have been created through him and for him. That's one of my favorite biblical statements. All things were created through him and for him. You were created for him. Like you were created just, not just through him. He didn't just set you off in creation and says, now go live your life. You were created for him. You exist for him. Why am I here? For Jesus. Why am I born? For Jesus. Why am I in this world right now in 2021 with the shape of everything that's happening? Why am I here? This is scary. Well, you were created for him for this time. Because everything was created through him and for him. And so if you are breathing today, guess what? Jesus has something for you and exists for him. He goes on. He goes on. And he is the head of the body. Sorry, he is before all things. And all him, in him, all things hold together. That's good too. I'm going to pause and preach there for a moment. All things in Jesus hold together. We are here in unity because of Christ. You are breathing right now because of Christ. If it wasn't for Jesus, your breath would end and our unity would end and our worship would end and our life would end. You think about the fine-tuning of the universe, right? That the universe is finely tuned, that it can only like, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but the, and I don't have it written down, but like the degree of the earth is in such a way and the certain temperature in such a way and all these things can, can only be this certain way for life to exist. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now the Laodiceans would have been familiar with this letter because Paul actually says in this letter to Colossians to share it with the Laodiceans. So they would have been familiar with this word. So to say that Jesus is the ruler or beginning, arche, of God's creation is to say that he is the foundation. He is the source. He's the revelation. He's the pattern. He's the goal of creation. That is who Jesus is. And listen to this. That is why he is so nauseated by lukewarm Christians in Laodicea. They're not criticized for holding false ideas. They didn't believe false doctrines. They weren't tolerating sin. There was just no zeal. There was belief without passion. Conviction without passion. And it made Jesus sick. That's an image we often don't have in our head of Christ, right? He says, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. If you look at that word spit, it means to vomit. That means in the original language. So he's saying your lack of passion, your lack of desire is so gross to the taste. Oh, Jesus. Like that's some hard-hitting truth, man. Because you're, you're lukewarm. It makes me feel sick. Like I'm paraphrasing. I'm about to, I'm about to spit you out. There's one thing, um, one thing, one thing more that the Laodiceans were known for. They were known for their water. 
its drinking water was terrible. The city lacked a natural water source, and so they actually had to um, pump in water from the neighboring cities of uh, the Colossians and the Heropolis. But by the time the water had arrived, it had lost its freshness, and it had lost um, its, its freshness, and it had become tasteless. Uh, Colossae was known for its cold, refreshing water that came from snowy mountains and rain-fed streams. And Heropolis was famous for its hot medicinal water and hot springs. But by the time they would reach Laodicea, they would become lukewarm and putrid. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, I see what he's saying here. So Jesus is using geographical realities of water to say that this church was neither hot, providing hot, healing water, or refreshing. They didn't provide refreshment for the spiritual weary or healing for the spiritually sick. It was ineffective and it was distasteful. They were lukewarm. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, tells the story of how he came to realize that he was lukewarm. He was sitting in a lecture and the guy giving the lecture was an atheist. And at one point, the, the lecturer said, um, started chastising Christians. And he said this, he said, if I believed what some of you believed, I would never rest day or night telling others about it. There's a comedian, I don't know his name off the top of my head, um, Penn and Teller, I want to say it is. And he makes the, he's an atheist and he makes the comment, he says this, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe the things you believe and not tell somebody about it? of proselytizing. Most atheists will say, don't proselytize. He's like, how much you got to hate somebody not to? And he doesn't even believe it. We have the greatest news. Christmas is coming up, right? Some of you already got your trees up. You're crazy. <laughs> Some of you are thinking about, you got the boxes out. You're just waiting for the other spouse to get on board, you know, getting the ladder out to hang. You know, it's probably wise to hang up your Christmas lights before snow comes. But for all that, we know what Christmas is all about. The Word becoming flesh. God becoming human. That baby that laid in that manger was the same one that spoke the stars into existence. Right? We know what happened on Good Friday. We know why it's called Good Friday because the agony and the suffering of one man produced goodness for those who would believe. We know what happened on Easter Sunday. That Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death. Death could not contain him. And that in him, he had become the first fruits of creation, of, of resurrection. We know what happened on Pentecost Sunday. That Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower believers to be a witness for his name. We know Jesus now sits on the throne at the center of the universe, reigning over all. And we know that he's coming back again. Did you know that? We know that he's coming back to eradicate all evil and to restore all things culminating in the city of God, talks about in Revelation. We have the greatest news, and it's worth living for. It's news that's worth dying for. It's news that is life-changing. It is news that is both healing and refreshing. Given who Jesus is, he deserves passionate life. He deserves passionate worship. But to be lukewarm says to that God, the amen, the arche, that he is not worthy of that. And that news is not that great. So Jesus looks at those who are neither hot or cold, and he says, I know your deeds. And it's because you are neither, I'll spit you out. Listen, I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is not Pastor Call being mean and fire and brimstone, you know. This is just what the scriptures say. We just happened to land there today. Okay? 
we got to preach the whole council here. We can't just talk about the nice stuff because then I wouldn't. That's, that's red letter, right? Some people just like to hang out in the red letters. That's red letter Bible. That's Jesus' words. Because you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. Lukewarmness is caused by compromise. It's caused by adopting and succumbing to the influence of our world, right? Of our culture. So this church had developed a faith that believed in Christ and worshipped Christ in the church realm, but in the public realm, they held to the, the values of the world. So they did the church thing, grabbed their coffee, right? Sat down, worshipped, maybe even raised a hand or two. You know, one of those risky ones. Heaven forbid. You know, they probably, in a, some sort of group, life group, maybe they served on the dream team. Right? Maybe they even played on a worship team. Who knows? Maybe they're part of the host team. Maybe they were spent every Sunday with the kids. They did the Sunday thing, but then every other day of the work, they did the wor- every other day of the week, they did the world thing. He says, you're, you're neither. You're lukewarm. This church had drunk the city's spiritual water. And so look at what Jesus says to him. He says in verse 17, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. So they have money, right? They have medicine, they're good dressers. And like the city, they made the claim, I don't need a thing. They probably still came to church and sang songs, but they were making the claim that they were spiritually self-sufficient. Well, I don't need to pray anymore. Life's good. God's blessed me. Why do I need to spend a little more time? Look at what I got. I got a nice house. Food on the table, good food. I get steak at least once a week. And it's T-bone. It's porterhouse T-bone. Why, why do I need to pray more? Why, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. I don't need a thing. In a city where blindness was cured by medical ointment, they were spiritually blind to their own need. And here's the thing about living for Jesus in wealthy, thriving nations. It's hard. It's hard to be a disciple in a nation like ours. It's easy to be a disciple in a nation where Christianity and faith in Christ is outlawed because there you're forced to make a choice. Either are or you're not. But here, you can kind of let the self-sufficiency of our culture kind of influence us and run deep in our veins. We can become lukewarm. We look at the materials and we look at the money and we use that as a measure of need. I don't have because I don't have like them. Or my house isn't as big as that. Or my car isn't like theirs. And then when those needs are met, there's little room for God. In fact, St. Augustine made the statement. He said, the saying, I have everything, is a terrible saying when everything does not include the living God. Like if you remove the Holy Spirit from the church in Laodicea, would they notice a difference? You remove the Holy Spirit from your faith in Christ, would you notice a difference? If you took Jesus out, would your life look the same? Would my life look the same? I think maybe more than any other message, it's, it's this one that speaks to us today because I think a lot of us face this, if we're being honest. We, 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 we step often into the lukewarm faith, the compromising faith. So Jesus continues, he says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You don't know. He's like, you don't know. You're not even aware. So here I am to tell you, you are not aware. 
You think you're rich, but you're poor. You're rich in things, but you're not rich in, in soul. You think that you can see, but you are blind. You can only see with your physical eyes. You cannot see spiritually. You think that you're dressed well, but you're naked. Your shame is exposed before me. And so do you want to know what God's answer is to Jesus' answer is to this, this church that is so nauseating? What is his response to this church and to us who are lukewarm? I invite Ben, why don't you come back up here? He doesn't run. He doesn't give up. He doesn't, he doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't kick you to the curb. He moves forward. He advances. You need to know this church. His heart is for you. His heart is for you. He wants you to, to come out of your lukewarm state. You are made through him, and you are made for him. And so his response to you is to return to you and for you to return to him. And so instead of spitting them out of his mouth, although he's calling, he's, he's saying, I'm about to do that, he's moving towards them saying, I don't want to do that. I want you to be refreshing again. I want you to be full of life again. I want you to be a healing source again. He's saying, don't turn to worldly things to satisfy. He's like, but come, come to me, buy from me, feed on me. That's very characteristic of Jesus, right? You look throughout the messages, throughout the gospel, throughout the New Testament. Come, feed, I'm the bread of life, right? Come to me, I'm, you're weary, I'll lift your burdens. He's saying, come to me, repent, buy from me. Instead of buying from the store, buy from me. And then listen to these words. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, get, get excited in a song. <laughs> right? He doesn't say, get excited in a song, you know. Shout hooray. Shout amen when the pastor is preaching. You can do that though, P.S. Thank you. Like a, anybody can do that, you know. Anytime, you don't even need permission. Seriously, this is your permission. But he doesn't say that. He's saying repent. Turn. Stop doing what you do. And turn back to me. The Greek word for love here, it's not agape love. It's not that decision love. It's not the covenant love. It's phileo. Phileo is, in the Greek, means affection. We have one word for love, but the Greeks, they had, they had multiple words. And this is affection. He feels for this lukewarm church. He has affection towards them. Right? It gives them the butterflies. Did you know that? You know, the, you know when you first start, you know, you start dating and you, get, you got the little like, knots in your stomach, we call it the butterflies, and you go to hold their hand for the first time. You don't know if you can hold the hand. He's got butterflies for you. feels for you. He loves you. We think of discipline as judgment. Like we think of God's rebuke as judgment, but it's not. God's judgment comes, listen to this, when he releases you to sin. I heard a, a preacher once say there's, there's the passive um, wrath of God and there's the active wrath of God. The active wrath of God it, we see this throughout scriptures as the physical judgment. It's the floodwaters on the earth. It's the nation in the Old Testament, the Babylonians coming and destroying the nation of Israel. It's at the resurrection when, when Christ returns on all of his glory and he eradicates evil and brings on the wrath of God to all that is evil. 
That's the active wrath of God. But the passive wrath of God, we see it in Romans chapter 1. Verse 24, it says, He gives you over to your sinful desires. He just lets you go. See, when, when Jesus rebukes you, when He corrects you, like, take that, receive that, because He's doing that out of love. It's when He's passive towards you that He's judging you. And you've got to really. Those whom I love, I rebuke, and I discipline. He's extending to them grace. And then look what it says, the famous line, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. And we usually hear this in salvation messages, right? say to the unbeliever, he's standing at your door and he's knocking, and that's not untrue, but what it's actually, he's talking to a church here. He's, he's, he's talking to our church, the enthroned creator and savior of the world, the true and binding foundation. This saying, let me in. Let me in. He's the little boy trick-or-treating and keeps knocking at the door even when they're not coming. Let me in. Let me in. And when you do, I will come in and I'll eat with you. I'll fellowship with you. I'll share in all of my riches and all my glory. You will become refreshing again. You will be a source of healing to others again. You will be full of life and passion again. Because I will be with you. Listen, if you're here today and you've never turned the door handle, turn the door handle. Let them in. Let them in. Maybe you're here and you know that you are spiritually bankrupt. And when I say here, I'm also talking to you online. Maybe you're listening right now and you know that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are naked and you are blind. Open the door to salvation. We talked about this last week. The door of salvation is open to you. Open it. Open, open the handle. He's knocking. Let me in. Maybe you've already opened that door, but over time, and this can be our tendency as followers of Christ. Over time, you've slowly pushed them out. Maybe you've let other things into the house and it's gotten crowded and Jesus has gotten pushed back outside. That's why it feels so empty and dry. You feel empty and dry? Let them in. Not just on Sunday. This is not, this is not enough. That's not it. If this is all that faith is for you, that's not, that's not faith. It's religion. Let him in. Maybe you've opened the door to the front of the house and you let him into the foyer, you know, to the guest room. Growing up, we had a room right off and you walked in the door in the entranceway. There was a room there that was like, we don't go in unless there's company. You let him in there. You let him see the seats, you know, some of you had those seats that you had plastic on, because you remember that? These are for when guests are here. Jesus is coming over. He can come here. But you haven't let him into the other rooms. And let me tell you that the Savior of the world is not satisfied until he is in every single room in the house. And let me tell you, you will not be satisfied until you let him in every single room of the house. Let him into the room called family. Let him into the room called sexuality. 
led him into the room called money. Let him into the rooms called past and future. Let him into the rooms called dreams and fears. Let him into the rooms called anger and depression and woundedness. Let him into the room called hurt. Let him into that room that you hope nobody ever even discovers. Guess what? He's at that door and he's knocking. And maybe nobody else knows. Maybe your spouse doesn't know. Maybe those close you don't know. You've tried to, you've barricaded that door. You've put up a brick wall in front of it. You don't want anybody in. Well, he sees the door and he's knocking. He's saying, let me in. Let him in. That's the message. That's the message to the lukewarm church of Laodicea. And that is the message to everyone who will hear it. And I'm going to be real. Every single person in the sound of my voice that's listening to this today, myself included, we have a room that he needs to come into. What our tendency is to push him back out. Maybe open it a crack. See? See the light? We slam it shut. He wants in. And he wants to restore a stream of refreshing water into your soul and into your heart, into the void. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.